hear ye, second print fiefdom. We once again travel back into the age of Marvel Yore. Lore? Yore? Yore? Marvel lore? I, lore and I Yore, it's, it's the same word, basically. We're traveling back in time to cover the rest of Marvel 1602. You hear the voice of the one miraculous Mark Claire, and I am one of your humble hosts today in our journey into mystery along this monstrous tale back into a... Another place, another dimension, time. I mean, it's 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 a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Marvel 1602. I'm Rems W. Martinez. Welcome back to Second Brick Comics. Mark, we're covering this again. Indeed, we are returning back to the year 1602 in the Marvel Universe. Thanks to our friend, Jeffrey, who is one of our Kirby Club members. Last time he was producing an episode, of course, you too can be a part of the Kirby Club. You can produce an episode of this podcast. You can be lesser than that, so you choose and get all the access to all of our bonus content uh, behind the paywall. This week, a little behind because of scheduling, but there will be Obi-Wan and, even if I have to do it myself, Miss Marvel recaps on the Patreon. Yes, that's right. That's how much I care about you people. Even the worst shows that are coming out shall be recapped by yours truly and uh, one of our family of friends here at Second Print Pod, but uh, yes, three months ago, Jeffrey tasked us with doing, thankfully, only the first half of 1602. So we covered issues one through four in an episode that I will link to in the show notes. I do not know the number offhand. You can find it. You're smart people. And today we will be looking at the second half of the 1602 series. This one is from Neil Gaiman, art by Andy Kubert. Did I get that right? Andy, yes. There's so many Kubert terms, so it's hard to keep track of all these Kuberts. Uh, but we're going to pick up right where he's left off for, for part five. So, Remzo, now they did a whole recap. Now, uh, just to get into this issue, of course, before I do that, I got to remind you, it's been a while since we recorded. We're kind of in the, in the podcast time zone. It's actually been several weeks since Remzo and I have sat down together. Almost forgot to tell you all the things you got to do. You got to follow us everywhere at Second Print Pod, on Twitter at Second Print Pod, uh, on the Instagram with the pretty pictures and the memes and the such at Second Print Pod. And of course, the Patreon, as I mentioned, patreon.com slash Second Print Pod. You can find us everywhere by typing those simple words and half words. Uh, that is that is all I have on that. Uh, that being said, Remzo, if you had to recap, now they did, a, did a, they did a little recap here on the first page. It's actually interesting. Neil Gaiman went a little BM, BMB on us, went a little Brian Michael Bendis on us, and actually put himself in the story as the initial narrator setting up the recap. What did you think before we even get into the story? What do you think about Neil Gaiman going a little Bendis on us and putting himself in the story as the narrator? You know, I want to know who who pitched him that idea, whether or not it was himself. Brian Michael Bendis? Or, yeah, I, I mean, somebody did, because it's not really... You know, I think I think Neil Gaiman gets often compared too much to um, Alan Moore. Alan Moore is a curmudgeon who really doesn't like his fans, as far as what I can are you tell. talking to me? Call me a curmudgeon, mate. I saw I saw El Blazer in the pub the other night. Like I said, curmudgeon and. <laughs> Neil, Neil Gaiman, because he kind of fits in that type of stereotype, I think he often gets mischaracterized as not being funny, as not being, you know, somebody that has a, a sense of humor. When, in fact, if you actually listen to his interviews and stuff like that, he is actually kind of a funny guy. He has a sense of humor. So to see like this dour punk rock Neil Gaiman featured in his own book, like, you know, it's one of those moments where it's like at the end of the day, this is all about fun. You could tell that he's had a lot of fun with this series. It's one of the more lighthearted and, and I'm saying that with giant air quotes, lighthearted <laughs> series that he's come out with for like, a Neil Gaiman story. It's pretty lighthearted. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's safe to say. Yeah. Quick side note. 
Are you excited about the Sandman series coming to HBO that has been talked about for like a decade? Now? HBO or news? Or, I'm sorry. Or, I meant to say Netflix. Uh, Netflix. Netflix. You're not here for the facts, people. Just the, yeah. just the takes. Yeah. That and this sweet, sweet audible chocolate flowing oh, yeah. straight into your ears. Um, I saw the trailer. I think it looks good. It looks. I, I, I will say this. What I had in my head was not what I saw in the trailer, but I'm still really excited for it. So I'm I, I'm going to give it a shot. I think uh, some of the changes that people were upset with are things that I think may may potentially strengthen some of the story. I think what they're going to do with Johanna uh, Constantine, because what they've said was, oh, she's not replacing Constantine. She's a type of Constantine or something like that. They, they, they we might see some multiversal aspect of it, which may or may not help the story but i mean stuff like that that some people were a bit miffed about I, i'm gonna give the benefit of the doubt on that but I, I mean i think the casting i think the set pieces the you know everything i think i think they're gonna do it well i i really do i hope so at least i have i have high enough hopes hopes i guess i i should say i have high hopes but not high expectations which is probably the the way to go with these things and uh i'm not gonna make a commitment but decent chance i'll be watching this and if i do watch this decent chance I will have a little bonus content and recap those episodes uh, for the old patrons that, that keep us going, that, that are the lifeblood of this program. But that being said, we'll get right into things where Neil Gaiman does do his little recap, has also a little banter with uh, Andy Kubert, is also in the recap scene. Uh, it's just kind of a funny line when Neil gives his whole soliloquy about, you know, I'm not going to do, I'll do my own recap. Basically, it's 1602, uh, and all the Marvel characters that you know are existing in some other form uh, for some reason or another. And they are also interacting with uh, actual historical figures like King James, like Virginia Dare, who was like, you know, but I think she was like the first girl born in America or something like that. And in, in the Roanoke column. So these are real historical figures interacting with medieval versions of Marvel characters. And there actually is a comic, a comic book explanation, but an explanation nonetheless of why this is coming uh, later in this uh, series that we'll be talking about today. But he basically gives a whole recap. My recap is there's medieval shit going on. There are feuds happening. There are assassinations going on and we're just swapping out Marvel heroes with powers for a lot of these uh, characters. Uh, but it's been fun. And uh, after this whole explanation of the breakdown, uh, Andy Kubert says, hey, Neil, if this is the Marvel Universe, what are all the tiny dinosaurs doing? And Neil says later, Andy, because we did at some point, at least in one of the flashback scenes to Roanoke, we did see like Savage Land type dinosaur things going on, too, which you br you brought up as as maybe being, you know, part of the Savage Land dragons in America, dragons in America. Maybe I could do a whole podcast on that. But I actually did just do a whole podcast about dinosaurs and whether they're real or fake. Um, that's neither here nor there. Tower Gang podcast. Anyway. We are moving into our story here. And uh, what, what would you say uh, of the first four issues? Did you have like a favorite medieval version of a certain character that, that stood out to you? Steve Rogers or Steve. You Ra mean Rojas was like Rojas? the most like out there departure you can imagine. His made me yeah. laugh. His made me cry. It doesn't <laughs> seem like Captain America. I think at first we got him confused for like Colossus or something like that or Warpath. But yeah, this is this is Cap. Yeah, that's definitely the weirdest one. But um, well, I don't want to spoil anything. We'll get there eventually. Uh, but issue number five now. And look, if you have not 
right? We're not, I'm not going to really recap the first four issues. We're just going to kind of pick up hot. So if you're interested in this one, go back, check out Jeffrey's episode from maybe I can even figure out uh, which episode it is as, as we sit here we and do, do live, this folks. since be with us in the we moment. do it live. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Sec- look, if I just type second print 1602, that doesn't do it. Ooh, but look, wait, if I type second print comics in 1602, Something else happens. Episode 86. Look at that. Live research, my friends. That's how good we are. So if you want to recap of the story thus far, you can either read Neil Gaiman telling you the recap, or you can go back and listen to episode 86. And I'll I'll try to recap some things here or there. But uh, essentially, we pick off up right where issue four left off. And uh, we see that Nick Fury uh, is is basically like with all his troops uh, type people and uh, Dr. Strange, Stephen Strange shows up to confront Nick Fury and Nick Fury is like, where the fuck did you come from? Because Nick Fury does not believe in magic. Uh, so he just thinks that magic is just like, you know, sleight of hand and, and tricks and, and this sort of thing. Nonetheless, here is Dr. Strange appearing, you know, many, many thousands of miles away where he should be. But, uh, this is when they have a little conversation recapping what we saw at the end of issue four, where the, the King, King James, I believe was sending this weapon. Um, and the weapon was intercepted by Dr. Doom's people. Of course, in this series dr doom is currently called otto the handsome and he is quite a quite a handsome uh king is uh, is this version he's a looker yes is, is otto van handsome we'll call him and uh, he steals this weapon meanwhile dr strange uh tells nick fury that he is currently protecting virginia dare he took in virginia dare um who was traveling with uh, her indian her white indian counterpart uh rojas of course steve rogers and Basically, uh, let's see. And uh, they also report that Matt Murdock, who is just this like wandering minstrel who also works as a spy for Nick Fury, has been betrayed by Natasha, who, of course, is, is this version of our black widow, uh, who is, of course, working for Dr. Doom. Uh, that pretty much sums it up. They also have a conversation about the witch breed. Now, the witch breed are this version's, this world's version of the X-Men. They're called the witch breed because they're born with powers and everything with powers is witches in, in medieval times. It's like the N-word, but for mutants. Yes. Exactly. And um, this is when um, they actually have this conversation about how um, P- Pietro says that Ma- like, well, I call him Magneto. He's the he's the grand inquisitor. Um, he wants all of the witch breed handed over um, and. Nick Fury is actually going now. Nick Fury has a good relationship with Charles Javier, who is the leader of like the witch breed, essentially. Meanwhile, the Inquisitor, the Grand Inquisitor is is their version of Magneto. He, as we know, is a mutant. So are his kids, Wanda and Pedro. But he hides that they are mutants while he is actually the one persecuting the mutants. So I said I wasn't going to recap it. I pretty much did recap it. <laughs> um, but yeah, we see that um, that. Nick Fury, that medieval Nick Fury is basically taking charge, taking the witch breed under his protection um, because he knows that bad people are coming for the witch breed. And and Charles Javier does actually uh, does actually trust them. Um, Yeah. And then meanwhile, uh, Pietro goes back to the Grand Inquisitor and the Grand Inquisitor, we find out has been uh, well, I might be jumping ahead there. Um, they also have a man in the Vatican because this is all this is basically like medieval. This is the War of the Roses, but with Marvel superheroes imposed on top of it. So the Grand Inquisitor's man in the Vatican is actually I believe it is 
1602 Toad is, is what we'll call him. So we get we get appearances from just about like every version uh, of the characters that we can uh, we can want to see here. Now we figure out something here that we were confused uh, in the last four, four issues, not through any fault of our own, but because we didn't really know what was going on yet. Doom held someone in captivity prior to this. And we had, you know, what's funny is I'm recording this over an older version and the gong just went off. Cause I, <laughs> I had the gong. gong. I think I might just leave it into the episode right there. Cause it was, it was, it, well, it made me laugh anyway. Um, so Dr. Doom is actually holding, not as we had, um, we had, we had theorized, was holding the medieval Thor. He's actually is holding the medieval Reed Richards here. So now we have finally identified um, that the, the medieval fantastic four uh, does, does fit into this whole thing uh, one way or the other. So were you surprised to find out that Reed Richards, that medieval Reed was a, a captive of Dr. Doom. Didn't they bring up, I might be completely making this up. Probably, but, let's, minute, I'll hear you but, out. but didn't, didn't didn't somebody like Queen Victoria or Nick Fury or somebody say, or maybe even Doctor Strange bring up that some explorers went missing? In the, and that may perhaps. have been... Yeah, I think it was like they, they sent out spies or whoever to go explore something and they never came back. So I think they may have possibly alluded to... The, the Fantastic Four at some point. Yeah, that was that was probably a subtle reference uh, that, that we were supposed to catch that. Uh, well, at least I didn't. Uh, but yeah, so meanwhile, this is, a, <laughs> this is a story where it's hard to catch on to a lot of references. I'll say like in a lot of our other like Elseworld, what if alternate dimension universe timeline, timey wimey bullshit yeah. stories. Usually they kind of lay it on thick. This one's kind of hard. Yeah. And, and as as it often goes with Neil Gaiman stories like Neil Gaiman is one of those guys that really likes to let a story unfold and he likes to plant a lot of seeds along the way. So he like drops in a lot of little things that you're like a little one liners here or there that you might not get. But then like by the end of his story that he's telling, he does nothing is for chance. He is one of these writers that really does everything with purpose, even when sometimes what he's doing just seems like weirdness for weirdness sakes. It usually is weirdness with with some kind of reason behind it, some kind of method to the madness. And we do see a lot of the stuff that was brought up in the first issues um kind of coming together here and uh but yeah be- being held in castle doom now are a couple people there is matt murdoch because he was betrayed by, by natasha and handed over to to doom also this old guy who we now find out his name is donal we'll see if that gives any clues as to his who his actual identity might be donal and uh they are both visited by astral dr strange uh in in the doom castle and he Doctor Strange basically tell him like, ah, don't worry, I'll get you out. You guys are gonna get out of here, but uh, just just chill for a bit. And they're, and they're like, okay, cool. Um, so uh, meanwhile, we now go back and see we were just following Doctor Strange around um, through his astral plane journey, visiting with Nick Fury, visiting with Donal and Matt Murdock in the Castle Doom. But the whole time he was he was just at home. Uh, he was doing this weird astral projection that thing that he does. And he was actually just there uh, with Clea, who is who we do have in this universe, along with Virginia Dare and Rojas, who he is uh, pretty much protecting under uh, under their stead. And let's see what else. Is this where we get the uh, the origin of the Fantastic Four? Let's see. Yes. Yes. This is where we get the medieval Fantastic Four, our origin, as Clea tells. Uh, is it Clea or Clea? I never know how I'm supposed to say Clea. her name. Clea, as Clea tells young Virginia Dare um, about this story of Sir Richard. Oh, so it's it's R- Richard Reed instead of was that the shoe bomber Richard Reed? Uh, Sir Richard Reed 
and how he was one of the most brilliant men who ever walked. And yeah, basically 10 years ago, I kind of get it. I do get a kick as cheesy as it is out of some of the like medieval names of things. So his ship was called the Fantastic. <laughs> That's why they're the Fantastic Four. So it's, of course, um, you know, this version of Richard Reed. Uh, I don't know what they call Sue, but whatever. It's it's he's with the sister. He's with Master Storm and this guy who is the the thing as well. The, the medieval Ben Grimm. And they run into some crazy electricity. This, there is a sea called the Sargasso. And on that sea, on uh, that sea that their ship was becalmed. It was a drift for days. So they they basically encountered this weird green energy. And they turned into the Fantastic Four. You see them putting their hands together. You see, you know, the 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 thing Ben Grimm hand. Um, and trails. And yeah, and it shows them fighting a dragon. They they went on all sorts of adventures and stuff. But then one day, they just vanished. They just disappeared. So the the fantastic the Fantastic Four are basically just like this myth, uh, this myth that Clee I guess knows about. And uh, but we know from this other scene that at least of this four. Now I, and this is when I started to realize, Oh, Dr. Doom has been holding all the fantastic four because he was referencing some like beast earlier. And we thought it was like maybe Thor or something. And now I realized the beast was the thing. So he is, he has had the fantastic four, um, basically, you know, held captive, um, this, this entire time in, uh, in castle doom. what do you think of our little fantastic four, uh, medieval origin story? This was a lot better than what they did for Matt Murdock by making him eat some radioactive. Uh, he he might have had the dumbest origin story, a medieval of origin story stuff, ever. I was like, really, Neil? Yeah. Really? He's a kid. To, to sum it up for anyone that missed that episode, uh, he went into a cave, saw some green stuff and ate it. That That's literally his origin story. <laughs> Ta-da. So this is better than that. I, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think look, Neil Gaiman's a great writer. He got lazy with that Murdoch thing, man. He could have come up with, give me a comment, give he was, me some, he was anything. Too busy coming up with new ways to say their names, like Richard Reed. Right. He's like, I know. If I just switch them, the, the first and last name, that will sound medieval, basically. Uh, yeah, but then we go and catch up uh, with the medieval X Men, and you know, there's a feud. Just as in the original X Men, there's kind of like a little bit of a, a tension between. Uh, well, he's called Scotius in this <laughs> between the, the medieval Cyclops and the medieval angel. Um, but it, it's because it's it's complicated in this, though, and we'll get to it a little more later. It's it's a little more complicated because in this, the reason there's the tension is because Scott Scotius, I should say, thinks that Warren has a thing for young Master Gray, who is John Gray. So that might be weird, except we know that John Gray really is Jean Gray posing as a boy so that she can be in Charles Javier's school for gifted young boys or whatever it might be. Of course, Charles Javier has to know this because he's fucking Charles Javier. I just think it's funny calling him Charles Javier. And um, so they both like this young boy. I mean, they, they, make, they make this clear later. Are they grooming Scott, him? Scott knows it's not a young boy. Scott Scott is actually doing the right thing. I mean, not the right thing, but he he has a crush on a girl that he knows is a girl. I don't think we find out till episode episode. Fuck, here I go again. In, in medieval times or modern times, I still have an episodes or issues issue. You could say. I, 
spoiler, I think that we don't get to this till issue eight, but I'm just going to talk about it now because we're, we're free, 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 freestyling here. The, the funniest like revelation comes when he's like, oh no, I wasn't hitting on. Uh, he's like, I didn't know that was a girl. I thought that was a boy. He's like, but I did have a crush on that boy. <laughs> it's what is what Warren basically says. Um, I think that's not until issue eight, but I just, I laughed pretty hard there because I thought that was just so funny because he's like, oh yeah, because Scott like goes to, for, Scott just goes to forgive him. He's like, this is a total misunderstanding. He's like, he's like, John Gray, what, Gene, what do you mean the girl? He's like, he's like, I thought that was a boy. And Scott's like, oh, I feel so stupid. I thought you liked her because I thought you knew it was a girl. And he's like, no, I didn't know it was a girl, but I did like that boy. <laughs> it's getting into all types of territory. Anyway, whatever. That's neither here nor there. Uh, we're, we're just checking in with the X-Men and, and how they're feuding and everything. And uh, essentially, uh, eventually, like um, Nick Fury also sends. Uh, we got Peter Parkwa, who is like constantly teased to have some interaction with a spider in this series, but we just never get it in these issues. But you know, Parkwa, he's he's still loyal to, to Nick Fury. But Fury's like kid. He basically tells him to get a real job. He's like, forget this stuff, kid. Like, just go like work on a farm or or whatever medieval kids do. Like, I'm kind of done with you here. So Parkwa kind of goes off to do whatever he may do. I guess he, he's going to work in the gig economy, the medieval gig economy. Uh, let's see. Then we, now, now what fury is now going to go, they, they've all decided to go to, uh, Roanoke because that's where, that's where the action is. That's where all signs are pointing to. Uh, so they're going to hop on Fury's ship, the Eagle's shadow. And so this is Nick Fury, uh, Charles Javier and the X-Men along with, no, that'll be, they'll be on a separate ship. Basically what they're mimicking here is like the three ships coming to America. Do you remember the three ships Remzo? You're closer to history class than me. The Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. There you go. They don't name them those here because one of them is called Eagle's Shadow, but uh, I think it's basically the idea. I mean, Neil Gaiman really makes efforts to sort of um, parallel not just the origin stories of various Marvel characters, uh, but also like tries to do so along with with you know certain historical uh, events here. Uh, but basically, uh, this issue wraps up as they, um, yeah, so they don't, they can't go the traditional route. Oh, yeah, they're not going to Roanoke yet. They're just going to, no, I'm sorry, they're going to free um, Donal and Matt Murdock from, actually, no, they're going to free Richard Reed. That's what it is, because uh, they realize that Richard Reed, like, knows enough about about weird stuff to deal with the weather, this weird weather world is ending thing that they're noticing. So they're going to go free Richard Reed from castle doom and they're going to do it on this ship. Now, how are they going to get to castle doom on a ship? Well, because young John gray and Charles Javier are going to propel this ship into the sky, which that shouldn't stand out at all. But, and and then as they're taking off, uh, we see that Stephen strange strange just kind of passes out again. And we kind of, kind of leave with that as we, uh, end up issue five here. But what'd you think of issue five as we dive back into 1602 by Neil Gaiman? I will just say like, you like when I ask you for opinion, then immediately butt in with more of mine. I'm really like, like I I said this because I did go back and listen. I didn't love the fit of Andy Kubert's art in this. And the first four issues as someone who does like, Andy and all the Kuberts in general. I didn't really fit 
feel like it was meshing with the style as much, but I think it's maybe, maybe the, the product of them working together for a few issues. I feel, I feel like Andy Kubert's style has really morphed to much better match the, the feel and tone of this story. What'd you think? Yeah. I mean, we, we've covered a, a couple comics that he's done in the past. And while I've said that this is probably some of his better work, it's still not the best work. I think his worst work was when we covered ultimate X-Men way yonder back in ultimate X-Men volume one. Uh, we did another one. And now this, this is probably, Probably mid-tier. It's not because the art is bad. It's just because some of the renderings come off strange. I'm not big into how the Fantastic Four appear and stuff like that. So from an art side, it's it's better, but still mid mid Andy Kubert. Uh, in terms of just this issue, like this felt more filler. I felt like uh, you know, the the cliffhanger that we kind of left off with last time is uh you know it, it didn't it didn't deliver as much of that punch. So maybe it'll come later with the remaining issues. Yeah. We left off where like doom captured this weapon that we still don't really know what this weapon is. And then I was, yeah, we're kind of expecting some kind of payoff to that in this next issue, but it was, it was barely even, it was kind of just glossed over. Um, so we will see what comes of that. But that being said, we now dive into issue six and here is where things get fun. Cause now the watcher, we, we, we find out that Stephen strange passed out because the watcher, uh, who is Uatu, who is seemingly are Uatu even, uh, pulls Dr. Strange's astral form out to the moon to have a little talk, to have a little chat with Dr. Strange. And this is where Uatu does this interesting thing where he, he's going to explain to Dr. Strange what's going on, but he also swears Dr. Strange to like the watcher oath or whatever that, he can't tell anybody else what's going on. So the watcher is at the same time giving this speech, explaining who the watchers are, explaining why they don't intervene, but also telling Dr. Strange, I am going to intervene by telling you everything, but also you now can't intervene. Like you're a watcher motherfucker. So I'm going to burden you with this knowledge and maybe you can help, but you can't tell anybody else what the hell's going on. So very convoluted, like watcher rules here. But uh, the basic gist is that, Look, we don't normally intervene, but when things get dire, we do. And and the reason things are getting dire is because there is an anomaly in this universe. Something like 15 years ago or whatever, something or someone traveled through time into this 1602 timeline and the universe reacted to it. And now everything we've seen play out has been a result of that initial time travel and Normally, the watchers would say no big deal, but apparently this is affecting so much that it actually is threatening the entire existence of the multiverse. Therefore, they're going to intervene. And then the Uatu basically says the season of heroes and marvels has come early. It was caused by the arrival of this time traveler who has yet to be revealed to us. Yeah, he shows strange all this stuff, but tells him like, Sorry, you can't tell anybody else. So, so, but what did you think about the appearance of the Watcher here? And and it's interesting because you know a lot of these different Elseworlds stories, they put it in a different like universe. This actually, they seem to be saying this isn't necessarily an alternate universe, an alternate timeline. It's a time travel affected version of our universe. Is is the how I'm taking it? Th- that's that's how I take it as well. And to have Owatu there is the canon Owatu across the Marvel universe is um it, it is one of those things where it, it gets a little bit weird. And, and this is kind of a side tangent. They tried doing this in 
the ultimate comics. But instead of like Owatu, the way we see him, they have these giant obelisks, like, you know, the giant ones that are like mm-hmm. in um, uh, Space Odyssey and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then they later basically say that those are a product of our main version of Owatu and stuff like that. And it gets kind of weird. I-, I like it when they try and make it this way, but it, it gets kind of strange. Ultimately matters with where does the story go? This, knowing how it ends, kind of works out, whereas in other attempts, and I think that attempt came a few years after this, that, that didn't really work out that well. Indeed. Well, we shall see how it all works out, but uh, we then move on and we see little medieval angel flying around and, uh, you know, he just, just to kind of spread his wings as this airship flies through the sky and we see more of this conflicts with Scott uh, or Scotius, I should say. And Scotius is, is yelling at Angel. He's mad that he's flying around. He's like, dude, we got to keep a low profile here. And Angel correctly points out, dude, we're flying. We're flying a ship through the air. Like, I think the, the least weird thing is like me with wings flying. At least that com- at least I can comprehend. Oh, there's a guy with wings. That's weird. But he's flying. That's not nearly as weird as the fact that a ship is flying through the air. So shut the fuck up, Scotius. And I got to side with Angel here. It's like, dude, if you're going to commit to Scotius flying is terrible in every universe, <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the biggest consistency, whether he's Scott or fucking Scotius or whatever the hell he is. He just plain sucks. Do you, do you think it's intentional? Like, am I always supposed to hate the character of Cyclops, whether it's a movie, whether it's TV, whether it's the ultimate, whether it's the medieval, am I always supposed to hate him or he's, he just always poorly written coincidentally, or is he written? Well, like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's written how he's supposed to be. Don't defend him. He's a horrible <laughs> character. He sucks in every universe, in every variant, in every way. No writer makes him look cool. No artist can substitute his horrible personality. He even got cucked in his own films. <laughs> yeah, and this is where He's we find out that terrible. like that Nick Nick Fury knows that like his, even Nick Fury has realized that little Master Gray is like a chick here. So it's it's this is the scene where it really starts to become clear why there's all this tension between uh, Scott and and I don't even know what they call him. I'm just gonna call him Mid- Medieval Angel. Um, <clears throat> we then go to to uh, Castle Doom, the deep cells of Castle Doom, and this is where we see the boom, boom. Boom, which we postulated was Thor earlier because we just didn't know where Thor was placed in the story at the time. But now we clearly see now that they've introduced the whole origin story of the fantastic four. Uh, we do see that it is um, our buddy medieval. I'm just going to add medieval in front of everybody's names. Mid- medieval Ben Grimm uh, trying to bust out of this cell in in Castle Doom. Uh, meanwhile, the ship does get to um, Latveria and not only like is are the is dr doom kind of uh ready for this dude he sends this craziest vulture army after them so so dr doom has a flying army of people with the the vulture basically these are all just vultures but they're just kind of like you know they're just kind of like minion random drones but they're all wearing what is that vulture suit which i think might explain something that confused us in the early issues where we thought one guy was vulture and then we thought oh this is a different guy and maybe this is somebody else I think they were all vultures, and now we realize vultures are just these guys that work for Doctor Doom and fly around in vulture outfits. Not that they're necessarily, not that one of them is necessarily, you know, the medieval version of the vulture. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think what confused it was that one of the vulture assassins was named Tombs. So I was thinking Adrian Tombs. So maybe he was like the vulture, but then Doom based all of his, these other guys off of that. Yeah, like he's there. He's just not important. Like he is the least important thing about the vulture army. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then see that like that other 
Fantastic Fourians are also breaking out. So they've all been held uh, in various manners uh, in Doom's castle. And we see uh, an, a very invisible, I think the most invisible we ever see here, is uh, the invisible woman takes out Natasha, who is, I guess has bas- basically been uh, hanging with Doom since she betrayed Matt Murdock. Meanwhile, we see Matt Murdock help this old man, this poor old man who was just trying to transfer this this nice little weapon. Oh, we, al- we also got a little piece of dialogue. I think it was in the last issue that, yeah, this weapon that this guy was carrying was, was this like gold ball that fell from the sky, but that wasn't the real weapon. That was just like a decoy. So Doom has this like gold ball that doesn't fucking do anything right now. Like it's just, it was just a decoy the whole time because they, they kind of figured some shit like this was going to happen. Uh, meanwhile, but Matt Murdock, what is he called here? It's like, Murdoch Matt or something. I, I something forget it. Stupid. Something dumb. Uh, but yeah, he helps uh, this guy basically escape um, from uh, from Castle Doom with with Daredevilian. Daredevilian. Would that be how you say it? Daredevilian. I like it. Yeah. It's a word now. It is now. Daredevilian like moves, and uh, they get out of the castle. Meanwhile, you know, all this crazy battle is going on in the sky. There's a fucking mutant filled uh, airship. And then we see this guy, this old man, Donal, he grabs this thing that was the real treasure, this staff. Uh, He's like, no, we're exactly where we need to be. I need my stick. And he's like, this is where I was like, oh, now I finally see where this is going. He's like, yeah, I just need my stick. This is the this is the real shit right here. He's like, oh, I don't know what you're going to do with that stick, man. He's like, just cover your ears. And then he like slams a stick on the ground. I don't think they actually show us the transformation at this point because they, they try to keep it more of a mystery. But at this point, it's pretty obvious because not long after that, there's some thunder, there's some fucking lightning. And right as things are looking dire for everyone as they're battling uh, these these doom people, lightning strikes and we get to meet medieval Thor, which really should just be called Thor because <laughs> isn't he already kind of medieval? So, yeah, yeah. this is a. Uh, it's pretty obvious like the, the characters still don't really know but the reader at this point realizes oh this old man Donald Donald oh he was fucking Thor the whole time all he had to do is tap his tap and tap his little uh, magical staff. So they have freed the um, the medieval Fantastic Four, um, and I just put like, th- and this is nuts because this is it is like a pretty a pretty nutso uh, battle scene that that, that uh, we get into here for for like a lot of this issue, which it's is like some really Flash Gordon level stuff. Oh yeah, it's nuts. There's like there's vultures flying, there's Thor coming in, there's witch breed battling them in an airship. Like the, the Fantastic Four is getting free. I mean, it's really it's the, definitely the most action of, of any issue, which I really did enjoy because I think after like five issues of yeah some a little action here and there but mostly like it's mostly been built up to get what felt like almost like a final battle here in issue six i thought was a pretty cool change of pace because it was like finally like it's this thing's only eight issues like we got to get some action here and i I think this issue uh really did uh really did deliver that so uh what did you just kind of think of of the big battle here It, it it reminds me of the giant sky battle scene from flash gordon Remember what, yeah. what, what oh, like the Do I remember? Flash Gordon's yeah. one of the If you have not filmed if you not filmed, if you have not watched Flash Gordon, and I'm impressed that you have, Remzo, it really uh, Flash shows Flash Gordon's that, alive. It shows some maturity that I didn't expect to see out of you. But, but Flash Gordon is one of the greatest movies ever made and ever. should be watched by anyone. And if you haven't seen it, please don't do anything after this podcast until you have seen, including breathe, eat, and poop, until you've watched Flash Gordon. Fantastic film. It will change everything. Yep, you might even become a podcaster one day after you watch it. Uh, but yeah, basically the result of this battle is uh, Doom's face does get scarred as the rest of them escape on 
on a boat as a boat. So now they're now they're using the boat as a boat because they've just they've used up poor Master Gray's uh, powers too much to keep this thing flying. But but she does see or no, it's Natasha, I should say, that comes down and sees um, that that this this version of Doom is now become the scarred faced version of Doom that we uh, have come to 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 know and loathe in the uh, the regular MCU. And our last page before we move on. We see Pietro um, is going to uh, you know meet with the Grand Inquisitor, and we find out that this whole thing was a trap. Toad, who was there, or this version of Toad, was kind of their man on the inside with the Vatican, was actually um, had actually colluded with the Vatican against the Grand Inquisitor, um, who is Magneto. So now these guys that were they were basically you know. Um, pursuing the witch breed this whole time and it, it has finally come back home to them where you were pursuing your own kind and being bad and now guess what you're getting screwed too and really we really should not be surprised by this at this point so uh what do you think about the the grand inquisitor getting his comeuppance i guess in a sense um i don't know how bad we can feel for him after he's been you know openly burning other witch breed literally at the stake this whole time but uh, it turns out he really couldn't trust these guys these vatican guys yeah pope magneto's just not not working out for me inquisitor magneto yeah whatever (laughs) <laughs> I don't care what his title is. Um, then we go back and uh, now this is issue seven. And we, I, I really, this is where I really think like Andy Kubert's art. I think my complaint about Andy Kubert's art, I think it was my complaint actually in the uh, ultimate X-Men. Sometimes he feels a little too cartoony for me. Boy, the evolution to this issue where like this first page where we just see a, a, a downtrodden uh, Dr. Strange is like, totally a different kind of art this almost feels like 90s valiant art or something like this first page here i just think andy kubert's art has adapted so well to the feel like the gritty feel the medieval feel of this story that i I don't know if it just came from the comfort of like him getting more comfortable with the feel of the story as he went on but i think like the art now i think it's always been good art but the art now and issue seven compared to issue one it just feels like it matches the story so much more it's been really interesting to to kind of see that play out over the issues yeah i mean my i I like his style my problem has always been renderings like do the characters look consistent do they have definable features do they actually look well that might be a criticism then because this strange looks very different than, than the other strange, but it, he looks like a downtrodden, worn out, sick of the shit strange too. Yeah. So Which I mean, just be. stuff, just stuff like that. Maybe it's maybe it's me nitpicking. I, I try not to. I I never try and criticize the art unless the art is like inconsistent and just all over the place. Cough cough. Battle scars. Uh, that's a throwback <laughs> reference. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and basically, you know, uh, Strange is basically doing our version of the Neil Gaiman recap from two issues ago. He's basically just telling the reader all he knows and why he's so frustrated that he can't even speak about this shit because the because the Watcher uh, forced him to not say anything. So he's just burdened with all this knowledge uh, of everything that's going on. But uh, we then skip ahead to see that the Grand Inquisitor is now on a stake himself. And so at this point, they don't know like the Vatican people don't know that grand inquisitor is a witch breed. They just know that he was harboring witch breeds. So basically they, they caught, they caught Pietro running fast and being a mutant. And so now they're like, Oh, so you were the grand inquisitor. You were working for us. But this whole time you were harboring these other fucking witch breeds. Those being, um, the, the Pietro and Wanda, witch breeds. I don't know why I get such a kick out of this, but in this Magneto is called Enrique 
and Charles is Charles Javier. So it's Javier and Enrique. I don't know why that's so funny to me, but it is. <laughs> I just think it's so it's, funny that Magneto is Enrique. Just, yeah, I mean, it's just like of all the names you're gonna you're gonna think of, Enrique is not. <laughs> is not <one laughs> no, it's not what I would think at all. So it makes me laugh, and this is kind of funny. Now, this might speak to inconsistency of the art because it almost looked like this guy that is like about to burn Inquisitor at the stake looked in last issue when we saw that Grand Inquisitor had been betrayed by the Vatican or what have you. Um, well, not really betrayed as much as found out. He was discovered that he was harboring Witchbreed. So it's really not a betrayal. It's actually actually the Vatican's being consistent here. If I, if I were to be honest, I'm not saying I, I'm in favor of their policies, their anti-witchbreed policies, but they are actually being consistent to Mark uh, is not pro Inquisition. <laughs> Look, I'm just I just want consistency. That's all I'm looking for here. But speaking of consistency, like this guy at the end of I wasn't sure just because the art, it kind of looked like it was supposed to be like Bishop in the end of last issue when they first caught him. It almost looked oh exactly gosh. like Bishop. But here now, it doesn't look like Bishop at all. I think like that. Yeah. Well, now I, I think it was just now. I think it's just a little bit of the inconsistency yeah. or this is a different guy. But whatever. I, I thought they were bringing us medieval Bishop and they did no such thing. Um, but basically Magneto is like, yeah, okay. You know, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I shouldn't have hid these witch breeds from you, but there's these really important, like magical papers and stuff that I left that the Vatican, like you're, you're going to want to go get this stuff before the Vatican burns me at the stake. I've accepted that, but the, you know, you gotta go get this thing. So it's these the idiots equivalent of please destroy my browser history. <laughs> yeah. Bring me my MacGuffin is, is what it is. So these, these idiots are like, yeah, I guess we should bring him this stuff to tell us what it's all about. And they bring this like case down and we see this helmet. Now this is of course the classic Magneto helmet that we have. That doesn't seem like he needs this. Cause isn't in the comics, isn't the only reason for the helmet to like protect him from professor X. It's like, literally that's the only reason. Yeah. So, I think it's just for the effect here for us to be like, oh, cool. The Magneto helmet. I think that's the only real reason. But they almost act like he needs it here to do this. Um, Anyway, he's like, yeah, there's that helmet. There it is. And then it zaps onto his head. And this is when they realize, oh, this motherfucker ain't just harboring witch breeds. This motherfucker is a witch breed. And now, of course, Magneto can free himself from the chains because he can break the chains. And dude, Magneto, as we've seen in, in like. I always do love the Magneto origin story. Whenever they show us, um, whether it's in the the X-Men film or in the comics, it it hits for me every time whenever they show this moment where he first uses his powers on like the Nazi soldiers because he just goes balls out. He's like, he like, he fucks these guys up and he does the same thing uh, here. This kind of reminded me of that where he just, he fucks these guys up and he goes balls out on these guys and he seemingly murders Toad as I'm calling him. Toad, the betrayer, the one who uh, turned him into the Vatican uh, for harboring witch breed. What did you just think of the whole? I know you said the Inquisitor Magneto isn't really hitting for you, but this scene, this particular scene, it did it did hit for me. Oh, I mean, I, I can't not love this scene. I mean, the, this in the last issue, this is where we're seeing all the violence and all the action. Like the stuff like this pays off, especially for some readers. You thought that maybe this has been more of a drier story because, you know, it's taken this long to really see it. This makes it worth it. This makes it worth it. Indeed, indeed. Um, so now we go, we are back on the ship, and boy, it's just a whole medieval Marvel party here. We got uh, Sir Richard Reed, we got all these, we got Scotius, we got, you know, all, all the medieval characters, Nick Fury, they're all having a good time. And um, meanwhile, we go back to, um, we find out that 
I guess King James has taken in strange, I believe, or something like that. Yeah, I think strange. Yeah, um, that they they've taken in Doctor Strange because they believe he is a traitor because they believe he is the one who I, I think informed Charles Javier and the witch breed that the king was coming for him, um, which is what ended up with you know Fury taking in the witch breed. So he sends off uh, Virginia Dare and and Dare goes to tells. Rojas or Rajas that she wants to go free uh, Stephen Strange because he was so nice to her and, and took her in and all that stuff. And then we go back to the airship. I think it's back on the air now. I can't keep track. This is where we do. Yeah, this is that scene I was referring to where um, she where they find out like um, they're talking about you now why they're fighting so much. And on uh, an angel was like, oh, how is Mr. Gray? And Scotius, I'm going to read some dialogue here because I find this pretty funny. Scotius is like, for God's sake, stop it. Just stop it. And Angel's like, what? Stop what? He's like, all this Master Gray nonsense. How is Master Gray? Master Gray is not. Master Gray was a convenient fiction. Master Gray is a joke that is no longer funny. And Angel's like, I don't understand. I thought I thought Master Gray was not feeling well because like she was drained out from like from using her powers to carry the ship to the air. And Scott's like, Scotia's like, Mistress Gray is unconscious. She is bleeding inside. Uh Uh-oh, that time of month. Master Javier is attending her. He does not believe she will last the night. And this is when you see see Angel go, uh, what, Mistress Gray? (laughs) And then Scotia's is like, don't tell me you didn't, you didn't know? Oh, you really didn't know. Yeah, and then it's only, only later that they're talking again. He's like, he's like, yes, I did not know that young mistress was a master, but I did, in fact, I was, in fact, in love with that master. <laughs> with Master Gray. Oh, Neil Gaiman. You got to give him credit for... Like, he does this in a way that doesn't feel wokey, I guess you yeah, should say. Like it just it, feels it, funny. It just comes off as funny. Yeah, yeah it, it, which is how it should come across, because it is funny. It's hilarious, actually. It's actually one of my favorite storylines of this series, the whole Master Gray thing. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. But uh, yeah, Master Gray, Ma- young Mistress Gray, I guess, is dying, and um, she actually does die here. Like Charles, she's being tended to by Charles Javier, and she has seemingly exhausted her powers, and he does the whole closing her eyelids, which which means she's dead. We then go back, and uh, Doctor Strange is. Oh yeah, they're gonna behead. Oh yeah, this is like man, you've seen Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so you know this is like the Game of Thrones moment. Like, like Doctor Strange is ready to be beheaded for betraying the the the, uh, the king, and then you're like, "All right, he's gonna get out of this with some magic shit." Nope, Doctor Strange gets beheaded, <laughs> just like just like uh, Ned, I think was his name in uh, in Game of Thrones. And that man, I, I, I hearken back to Grant. Grant hearken. Now I'm talking like medieval. <laughs> I hearken. Oh, now back you're to- <laughs> in the beat. Now you've got. Now it I'm down. in the zone. Now I'm in the medieval zone. I hearken back to Game of Thrones because it. It is a show that, you know, let's not talk about how it ended, but it, it was one of the greatest talk TV. about that last season. It was one of the greatest TV experiences, at least for like four or five years for me. And man, but that was like, I was getting into the show in before that episode. Uh, I actually was supposed to say episode there before that episode. And I remember just, I'm so used to TV tropes and I just, I just, they made you think this guy is the main character that you're going to follow for years to come. And then you're, you're waiting for him. You're like, all right, who's going to intervene? So he doesn't get his head chopped off and then his head just gets chopped off. And you're like, Oh, Oh, this is a different kind of show. Sean Bean. No. And and I'm not saying this had the same impact, but it it didn't remind me of that scene where I'm like, oh, yeah, Dr. Strange is going to do some magic shit here. Nope. His head gets chopped off. (laughs) 
<laughs> which you know I, I i really appreciated so I, I i really am digging a lot of elements of the story i think i think i enjoyed it on a surface level like i like the the sort of gimmickry of it um for the first four issues that we looked at a few months ago but now i think i'm at the point where i'm really enjoying the story and really a lot of the little little things that hadn't paid off for me early on they're really starting to click whether it's the master gray stuff whether it's the the stephen strange even fucking rojas even rojas is like i'm starting to get it There's i'm starting to get what he's doing with heart. it Yes, I'm starting to get what he's what he's doing with this whole thing, basically. But yeah, now we have um, dead Doctor Strange, who is still alive in astral form. And basically, Doctor Strange figures out a workaround here because the Watcher told him, you cannot tell anybody this as long as you live. Oh, we found our loophole because now he's not alive. He's dead. So now he can go and tell Clea about what's going on here and he says look i gotta tell you this shit this is crazy there's a loophole i'm dead now so i can talk about it basically there's someone called the forerunner and they're not sure who the forerunner is but the forerunner came from the future and whoever this was when they came from the future it set into which really makes no sense but time travel never has is never supposed to make sense it sets into motion this age of heroes uh this age of the marvels like 400 years before it's actually supposed to this is what's causing all the instability in the multiverse that the watcher was so concerned about and this is why they have to then now the mission has to be they have to fi- find this forerunner and send it back through the the time thing it came from to put all well basically is the idea so that's now our plot, which I got to say, at first I was thinking this is just a random Elseworlds thing. And I kind of like it. There was some effort and we'll get to who the forerunner is. There was some effort to explain this outside of just I'm I'm Neil Gaiman and I made up a medieval Marvel world. It might be a silly explanation because comics. What can we expect? But what did you think of just the 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 fact that this this is not just randomly an Elseworlds story? This is this universe or this version of this universe and these characters appearing this time, there is a, a storyline reason for it. It, it was really, it was really refreshing because for a while, and this is coming in a period in Marvel where they're having some of their most iconic stories. This is where you're getting uh, civil war. This is where you're getting secret war. This is where you're getting um, X-Men Messiah complex and stuff like that. Th- this period in the early two thousands was really where a lot of great stories were coming out. House of M. How could I forget house of M all that stuff? Um, everything felt while th- there's an impact, it's almost self-contained. And a lot of these else world, what if type books were pushed aside, they didn't really matter. It's good to feel like they matter again. It's good to feel that they have an impact. It's good to feel that they're not just always self-contained. Now, I like them self-contained, but sometimes, especially when you're doing an eight-issue event with one of the best writers uh, in comics and in literature in the past hundred years, you know, it 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 feels appropriate. Indeed, yes, indeed, I, I do appreciate that. That Neil Gaiman took the time to to take those extra steps because he, he probably could have told relatively the same story or a similar story without trying to connect it to the you know the regular continuity. And I I do appreciate that he did that and tried to give us some logical explanation of why we're seeing all this as opposed to I'm fucking Neil Gaiman and I want to do some medieval shit. <laughs> so here I am. Uh, nonetheless. I'm enjoying it either way, but I think that adds an interesting little wrinkle to it that I didn't necessarily expect. Um, we then see uh, basically the funeral of young Master Gray, and Angel takes her into the sky, and this is basically like a funeral pyre in the sky, and then I guess Scott 
destroys her body with his eye lasers in the sky. And then for some reason, she turns into medieval Phoenix. <laughs> like, like we don't really get the character Phoenix, but as she is like dying and the body is, is falling into the sea, we do see like the Phoenix force. So there are some implication. I think this is more as an Easter egg kind of, thing. I mean, it's a fucking page, huge page splash page Easter egg, but I think it's more just a little, yeah, remember this is Jean Grey and Phoenix more than because this is, this character doesn't end up uh, mattering at all uh, in yeah. the end. There's no there's no return of the character. She is in fact dead here. But they show us a little Phoenix Force just to remind us that you know that we're making references to Marvel Comics here. Um, we go back and uh, we kind of have this scene where uh, Reed is is pondering the whole thing, pondering the idea of transmutation and and this and that. Um, but we also see that. Oh, this is when uh, what, did I miss something here. You're, you're talking not Rot Reed. Poor Jean Grey stories. Oh, or Von Doom stories. Oh, yeah. This is who is this? Oh, that, oh yeah. The, Johnny Storm looks so interesting here because he has a beard and he almost looks like an astral projection, but it's actually just he's just constantly on fire. So it's what they did with the Fantastic Four powers here. Sue is always invisible and Johnny is always on fire. So they don't have these other forms. That's why you never actually see Sue. You just see her talking invisibly or you see some invisible force doing stuff. That's that's medieval Sue, but she's always invisible. And that's medieval. It kind of makes more sense, you know, because, you know, Ben's in a permanent state. Why wouldn't they be in a permanent state? So another little interesting wrinkle there. Um, we then see that King James is sending young Peter Parkwa, my favorite name of all these, sending him on a mission because to kill Nick Fury and Peter Parker is like, but I'm not, I'm not like a traitor. He's like, no, no, you're going to be, he's like, no, Nick Fury is a traitor. And to, to prove your loyalty to the crown, you're in good with Fury. You've been his, his little protege. You're going to be the only one that can get close enough to Nick Fury to actually kill him. Um, so you, you got to do that. <laughs> and Peter Parker, um, agrees to do so agrees to go kill Nick Fury at the behest of the, um, the King James actual historical character, Kim James. Uh, we then see that now this is another confusing thing. Cause now I, I guess he didn't, I guess he didn't kill toad. Cause it looks like this toad character is still alive. Um, oh no, this is yeah. No, he's still alive. Anyway, uh, we now see that Magneto is also forming. Now they're not called the evil mutants. He, he even pauses. He's like, no, we're, we are a brotherhood. We are the brotherhood of those who, who will inherit the earth. <laughs> <laughs> a little doesn't, do doesn't doesn't quite flow off the tongue like uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but he has formed essentially the medieval Brotherhood of, of Evil Mutants. He has shaved um, and he's wearing a red and purple sort of cloak here. So he looks a lot more now like the Magneto that uh, we have come to uh, know and loathe uh, more so than the uh, the bearded Grand Inquisitor before. Um and then on the last page here, uh, we see Rojas, Rojas, Rojas. I don't know how I'm supposed to say that. Rajas is traveling on this ship um, with Clee and Virginia Dare. And uh, they're talking about the whole the whole situation. And, and Clee is explaining what Strange told her. She's saying St- Stephen called it the forerunner, something that made everything else happen, even made things happen a long time ago. Something that has to be sent away from here. Stephen suspected it was you, Virginia. And she's like, me? And Clee says, no, but he was wrong. You are not the time traveler. Is she Rajas? And then I love these last two panels. Rajas, there's one panel of Rajas is doing the same uh, look that he has in every other panel, the serious stern Indian face. And then the next panel, he does this little smile and says, and talk. And now he's not talking. Um, he's not talking medieval anymore. He's like talking like R.C. Rogers. He's like, well, 
Put it like that, Miss Strange. I guess she's not. So that is our our cliffhanger before we go into uh, into the final issue here, issue eight of sixteen oh two. What did you think of the reveal, or had you suspected it prior to reading that of Rajas as the time traveler? I had not expected that at all. When this hit me the first time, I was legitimately like, you know, it's really hard to to throw those moments on me in comics, but this was good. Yeah, and I really like how I really like how they did it because it did seem like in a sense, if you were looking for it, it was kind of always there because he is the one character that seemed so different from his actual character, like to the point that it made no like every other character like, oh, yeah, Stephen Strange. He's just another sorcerer, whatever. Nick Fury, he's got the eye patch. He's still a um, like a, a for hire working for the crown kind of government guy. Like everyone seemed like just a tweaked medieval version of what we already know them to be in the Marvel universe. Rajas is the one that seemed like, what the hell? He's this big white Indian. This makes no he's sense. The most out of place. Right. But now it makes sense that he's the most out of place. And I, I just, I just really, man, it got me, man, that, that the two panels, when he goes from serious Indian phase to like, here I am happy go lucky Steve Rogers. You know me. I just, it, it just got me. I thought it was, I thought it was a really cool reveal, especially because they had, he was intentionally talking like that the entire time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that means he was typically, he was intentionally doing a racist Indian stereotype, which is the funniest part of this whole fucking series to me is that Steve Rogers was doing Indian voices that he heard in 1950s movies until now. Like that, that's what he was doing. And that's so fucking funny to me. I, 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 I laugh pretty hard when I figured this all out. Um, so, yeah. So with that, what is uh, what's your excitement level as we go into issue eight here? Now that we really see the the full story has unfolded. Uh, this whole series has been kind of a pendulum. At some points, it gets really exciting. At some points, it gets just really kind of low. I feel like the pendulum, the pendulum has been swinging up, at least from where we picked up today, from issue five to six. Seven was really hitting it. This next one, I think, is where it really swings back. Well, not swings back, swings forward, keep swinging, keep swinging. Yeah, back it, gets, it, go, it goes good. It's swinging. That's it, all that it, matters. It doesn't swinging. matter which way you're swinging, as long as you're swinging. Uh, we head into SU8. We start off hot, I guess you could say, with a flashback where finally we're getting the whole story here. And it turns out it's this is real Steve Rogers. Like this is actual Steve Rogers because he tells his whole life story. He tells his life story of how he was a young scrawny kid, got recruited by the military, got injected with a serum, went and fought in World War II. It's as if he lived the whole the whole life of the Steve Rogers that we know and love until we get past that, until we get into the future where there were the dark times. Um, and, you know, so basically Steve Rogers lived through and past the age of heroes. Like we see older heroes that aged and like died and got sent to prison. Cause eventually being a hero became uh, illegal. So like we see like a, a Spider-Man, a daredevil, old ass Spider-Man, old ass daredevil um, in handcuffs. And uh, you know, you could probably do a whole separate comic on this, this dystopian future that, that Steve Rogers grew up, you know, aged enough to be in. Uh, but yeah, basically eventually these guys, um, they sent him back in time. Like, Oh, his pun, that was his punishment. Cause he was like the last hero and like he couldn't die or something like that. But, um, they shot him in the head, not the chest it felt like a hammer, but they actually, they shot him. They, they strapped him to this device that instead of just obliterating his existence, which would make more sense, it sends him back in time. So somehow he got sent back in time and appeared, um, in, you know, I was, I guess it would have been the 1602, like 1498 or something like that. And he's just this naked fucking white guy. And he teams up with these Native Americans. Turns out, of course, because he's super strong, he's got the super, super soldier serum. He's really good at hunting and shit. So they take him in and then they meet some white people. 
the the Roanoke colony, Virginia Dare, and this is why they live instead of die. So this is extra because in in real life the Roanoke colony just disappeared. No, you now there's different theories about why. Some people think they got you know abducted by aliens. Some people think they just starved to death. Um, you, I'll let the, the listeners at home decide what's more likely. But in this version, they don't starve to death because Rojas brings them some food. So so that's why Virginia Dare lives uh, to grow to this age or what have you. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically, you know, updates us on, on where we are. We also get an explanation of Donal from Donal about why, uh, this hammer was hidden from the Vatican for so long. No, no fucking kidding. Why? Because he can turn into a fucking God of thunder when he has it. So, uh, all of our stories are, are kind of coming together here. Um, but yeah, it's the three ships. So there's one ship that has most of these guys. It has Fury and the Witchbreed and Donal and the Fantastic Four, etc. Um, another one with, let's see, uh, Rojas, I think, is on another one. Uh, Rojas, Dare, and Klee. And then there's another ship that, let's see, I think this is the one, like, Peter Parquois is on a ship, too. Or maybe, oh, no, they, no, the Grand Inquisitor is on a ship as well. It's confusing, man. There's a lot of ships, is, is the point. A lot of ships all heading uh, to this Roanoke colony. Uh, and this is this is where we do uh, we do get this scene finally where um, where Scott Scotius and Angel uh, make up like <laughs> I really love this. Scotius is like, hey, uh, do you have a moment to talk? And he's like, I have a moment. He says, I believe that I have made made this is Scotius talking to Angel. I may have done you a great wrong, sir, with without intending it. He says, indeed, he says, you see, you did not know Jean was. That is to say, you allowed her disguise to fool you. He's basically saying you're a fucking idiot. You thought her a man. And he says, yes. And he says, ah, you're gay. (laughs) You idiot. He says, if Jean was anyone's, she was mine. She would have been mine. And I thought that you were in love with her. I was jealous of you and jealous of her. And all that time you thought her a man. So I was a fool and jealous, witless fool. And I, with all my heart, I apologize. And then Angel says, oh, oh, please don't. He says, you do not accept my apology. He says, well, if you wish me to, I shall. But you have nothing to apologize for, sir. I was truly deceived and thought that Jean Grey was a man. But I do believe I was in love with that young man. (laughs) (laughs) Some Monty Python level (laughs) stuff. It really is. He's like, don't be. He's like, it's all good. Yup, I am an idiot. But I did love that boy. (laughs) No, you see, Scotius, I am, in fact, a homosexual. It is all fine now. Which is just, there's just so many layers of... So, look, this is how you work gayness into comics without being woke, all right? You do it in a hilarious, absolutely hilarious, gender-bending storyline here. And I, I think, and I love everything about this. I think it's absolutely hilarious. It made hilarious. sense. It worked out. It's not pounding you over the head with it, and it's just, it's just plain funny. And this is before... I don't even know. I think Neil Gaiman would probably get in trouble for this now. Like, this is because you're not allowed to, like, joke about things like this anymore. And I just think it's just plain funny and really good writing. So I... I I totally love how this whole situation is handled. Frankly, it's one of my highlights of the series. Like, I just think it was a funny little thing that I started off not getting. And by the time I got it, dude, Neil Gaiman had me in stitches in like three different scenes just around this one joke. So brav, brav fucking O is what I say. What say you, Ramso? Uh, it was, it, it's one of those, it's one of those like subplots that pays off in just a way that's a hundred percent just for the readers. Indeed. So we move along and all these, uh, everything is kind of coming together here at the Roanoke colony. Uh, everyone's got their various missions. Uh, the main one being they're going to return Rajas through this thing, through this like anomaly or whatever is, is, is basically the plan here. 
Uh, Klee and the crew arrive. Oh, by the way, she has Doctor Strange's head with her because why not? Because let's make this story even weirder. She is carrying Doctor Strange's head uh, the whole time here. Um, we, uh, let's see. So, so strange, Dr. Strange and the strange head, they, the Clea and the Dr. Strange head, which talks by the way, they go to tell, uh, Charles Javier, what's up? Reed is like, okay, I got to locate this, uh, this coronal anomaly thing. Um, but Virginia dare is connected to it. So she's going to be able to find it. Um, does this all entirely make sense? I don't know, but I'm really having fun with it now. Um, fury. Meanwhile, we go to the, the ship cause Peter Parkwa is on a ship, um, of the King. Um, cause he's sending Peter Parkwa to kill fury. We go and, um, Peter Parkwa comes. He was like, like fishing or something. He comes back. Everyone on his ship has been murdered <laughs> by, by Nick Fury. And Nick Fury is just there like cleaning his knife. And it's like, ah, Parkwa, what's up? <laughs> so um, he's basically Fury's like, yeah, I killed all those guys. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not done. And basically Fury gives him the out here. He's like, I'm going to turn around and kill you or you can be gone he's like or i could never have seen you here so he turns around and in fact like peter was about to kill him i think i think it's it's implied to, at least to me anyway i i think that fury knew parkwa was there to kill him but also kind of knew he wouldn't and and gave him the out because you see parkwa is like about to kill him but he's he's a little kid he doesn't really even want to kill fury and he just saw fury murder everyone on the ship and then he parkwa just takes off and then we just see fury just laughing so i, I gotta think he didn't he never took Peter Parkwa as, as a serious threat against his life, but uh, seemed to have a lot of fun killing everyone else on the boat. <laughs> Very oh, Nick wow. Fury. I mean, this is where like all the characters um, are, are really hitting, uh, you know, pr- pretty well for me here. We then see, meanwhile, almost forgot about him. Matt Murdock, Daredevil. He sneaks into uh, King James's room after he was after he was coronated. Um, so, and it's seeming, I don't know if he kills him or what, you don't really see what happens, but, um, it, it seems, it seems like he's going to kill him. <laughs> that's what it says. That's what it seems like it's going to happen there. Um, meanwhile, Javier talks to our Magneto, the grand inquisitor. And basically like, you know, it's one of those comic book things. We need, we need some help from everybody, even our enemies to make this thing happen. So they need Magneto to use his powers to hold this anomaly in place. And like they do this whole thing where Charles, like they have Iceman freeze the ship, but not freeze the people inside. Cause so Magneto's like, well, you needed to kill him. You don't, you obviously, well, Enrique, I should say, it's like, uh, you, you obviously weren't going to kill me. So tell me what you need me for. And they need Magneto to hold the anomaly. Um, they need Donal to, to re-embody Thor and Thor is going to like do something else with his thunder power to do something like keep it open. You know, it's all, it's all fake comic-y science type stuff. I, I guess I could say, um, let's see. And then, um, Rojas and fury like Rojas is taken off. He's like, he's kind of like, I don't know if I should be going through this anomaly. Like I'm out of here. And Virginia dare who can transfigure, uh, has turned into a dog to track down Rojas. I really enjoyed this scene too. Like Fury catches up to Rajas and you know, he has this whole speech and Rajas is like, I'm not going to leave. This is my country. Like these people need me. Like I live with Indian. Now I talk like an Indian now and, and I'm just gonna, I like how he has like walk the captain. Like an Indian. I like how he has the cat, the like Indian war paint in the a shape now in the captain America a shape, which I, I thought was pretty cool. He's like, look, and then, but, but this Nick Fury, he's like, look, Rajas come down. We can talk about this. I won't hurt you like as you say you knew me someone like me in another world tell me would that other nick fury betray you would he lie to you think about it and then roja says 
Okay, I'll come down. And then he says, you know, that other Nick Fury you knew. And Rudge's like, yes. He says, I'm not him. <laughs> and he takes him and and just takes out Rojas. And, and, and he's like, I lied. So now Nick Fury is carrying this Rojas. Who he's totally taken out back to uh, to send him through this anomaly. Meanwhile, this one other guy is still with with. Oh, this is Banner. That's right. Uh, the Bruce Banner of this time is is the one that was sent with Peter Parkwa to kill uh, Fury. So now he is back with Parkwa, and he's about to shoot um, Nick Fury as they see him carrying Rajas. And um, just as he's doing this, Virginia Dare as a dog uh, attacks Bruce Banner or this Banner and like stops him from killing Rajas. And and Banner's like, kill the brute, Peter, kill the brute. And and Parkwa just sees a nice dog and is like, come on, girl, get off him. You tell me you came for. <coughs> We're not going to get Fury now. Uh, and basically, so, so Fury just goes on and keeps carrying the body, uh, you know, towards this anomaly while Peter Parkwa has a crush on Virginia Dare as a dog. <laughs> There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Um, but yeah, and then, um, yeah, the, the Fury is basically carrying Raja's into this anomaly. They're like, yeah, Fury's going to die here. And they're like, that's fine. He throws him into this anomaly. And then after that, there is silence, absolute silence. So this is where we see that uh, yeah and this is along with like with magneto holding the thing and thor's lightning doing some other comic book shit now we learn through what is the um the narration of the watcher again that time has been healed and we see the watcher talking to what i call the mega watcher like the, he's like a a watcher with an even bigger brain and a weird like thing on his neck or uh, on his head and he's like um and basically you ought to basically at the end of this for the memories, I guess. So even though the universe has been set back the way it is because they wanted to not kill everybody, the 1602 universe still does exist and has been saved in this little like emerald that Uatu now wears around his neck. So basically all the time we have known Uatu the watcher, he has had the 1602 universe in his neck as like a memory, I guess. But also as we see, they are still alive. So then we go back and yes, Rogers is gone. He's been sent through, but these, and they still have the Dr. Strange floating fucking head here, but everyone else is still alive. Uh, the grand Quizzer's alive. Virginia dares alive. Everyone's alive. Uh, Kalia's like, cool. I don't even live in this dimension. I'm out of here. She goes back to the dark dimension. <laughs> She's just like, bye. And, uh, and everyone else kind of just carries along like grand inquisitor and Charles. They, they kind of make up actually. They re- they really make up grand inquisitor even has, um, asked Charles if he'll teach his children, Wanda and Pietro and Petros. So I guess, uh, I guess all cool there. Sorry about the 40 years of like inquisiting all the other witch breed. We then also see. So of course there was some kind of energy blast that, that came out with a certain kind of radiation. So we do now see this, this, uh, 1602 Bruce Banner has now turned into the gray Hawk, which I found, which I found uh, pretty interesting. And then this has been teased for eight issues. I love how, how um, he did this, how Peter, uh, Peter David, how Neil Gaiman did this. We see that, you know, Peter Parkwaz is walking off in the sunset with a 13 year old Virginia dare here. They seem like they're going to be a couple. And right as they're walking off, we finally see, they teased this a number of times in the series early on. We finally see a little spider who we have to imagine was imbued, infused with some kind of radiation from this event to falling down about to bite Peter Parkwa on the hand. Uh, as we end this thing and that's it that's it for 1602 i have a lot of thoughts but remzo i've talked enough what do you think 
let's just go ahead and jump into grading. In terms of the art, you know, in, in part one of this, uh, I, I think we gave the art kind of a middling range. I don't quite remember what it was. I felt like this progressively got better. It's not my favorite Kubert art, but it's still really good. There were moments that were good enough to carry the weak moments. I'm going to go ahead and give it a four out of uh, five for the art. And then for the story, I, I mean, like I said, it's kind of a pendulum in terms of things get really heavy, then things get really slow, and it, it kind of did that. But for the most part, this is really original. It's just a whole lot of fun. I think a lot of people who might be intimidated by some of Neil Gaiman's work would really enjoy this i'm gonna i can't give it a five because i felt like the dry spots are still a bit dry but um the the last four issues really carry it home i'm gonna give it a 4.5 for a total score on my end of 8.5 out of 10 we are we're very much along the same lines here I, i think especially the first four issues were like pretty good setup of the universe uh, but these last four I, I think it just really picked up like like everything started tying together a lot of the the storylines like really clicked for me the I loved the medieval Thor um, I love like as I've said already I loved everything about the hilarious situation with Scotia's and and probably the best use of Scott ever is the 1602 version um, of him and uh, and young master gray or what have you and you know it might feel forced in some way to make every character of version of themselves eventually but you know that's what this is you know that it's it's marvel versions in the medieval times and i think as far as something like that goes i really appreciate the efforts of neil gaiman to like make a storyline thing out of this and actually even to the point that we've always seen the 1602 universe around the watcher's neck i thought that was kind of interesting and it, it just really picked up so I, i'm gonna agree with you on the writing i can't put it quite at a five it's not quite there but it's darn close i'm also gonna give the writing a 4.5 and I'm also going to I'm going to just be a little tick higher from you. I'm going to go 4.5 on the art, too, because to me, you know, a a big part about art is how well it fits the story. And I don't know. I don't think it was quite as true in the first few issues. But since we're just looking at these last four, this hardly felt like Andy Kubert art to me. Like, I think that's one of my bigger criticisms of Andy Kubert is he's he often feels a little too cartoony. But this show is an incredible adaptability of, of the way he's adapted his own art. And maybe a lot of credit of this goes to the inkers and stuff, too, which often, you know, get get forgotten about. But, you know, to me, the art, it's, it's really awesome and really does more. Most importantly, fit the story here. I'm also going to give the art a 4.5. So that brings me to a total of nine for at least for this second half of, of Marvel's 1602. That's an SPC 17.5. That's a good shit right there, my friends. Not not many things get that high. And I know, because I've been going through our past episodes for an upcoming project, gathering all our grades. We usually don't get this high. Like 17.5 is actually in the the upper echelon, I would say. Yeah, agreed. This was fun. Jeffrey, thank you so much for forcing us to go back and finish Marvel 1602. Yes, and speaking of forcing things, I as soon as we finish this, I'm going to force myself to record another episode of What Mark Missed featuring my long, harrowing journey through the Ultimate Fantastic Four. Um, I'm finally wrapping that series up, so I'm going to be doing another episode of this, of that, for exclusively for our patrons. Again, patreon.com slash secondprintpod. If you enjoy what we're doing and want to hear us do more of it, you can support us over there. Remzo, anything else to add? Folks... If there's one thing you can do, regardless of era, time, dimension, universe, one thing, it's this. You just gotta read comics and and change change the the world. Good night, America. Adios.